Hey, it's Steph Dixon, and welcome to the Live Wide Awake podcast. Thank you for being one of our listeners in 88 countries around the world. Today, we're speaking with Chris Wedding, the founder of Entrepreneurs for Impact, which is a climate CEO mastermind peer group and also professor at Duke University. Chris is a former private equity investor, award-winning professor, startup founder, investment banker, and executive coach with over 1 billion of investment experience and 75,000 professional students taught. I first discovered Chris through his amazing newsletter, which talks about climate, startups, productivity, leadership, and always on a very skimmable summary of what's happening with excellent resources. Now, in this episode, we talk about the exciting and terrifying with climate tech, being an expert in failure, innovation, success, watering your own mind, and so much more. Okay, it's time to live wide awake. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining me on the Live Wide Awake podcast today. As I mentioned before we started recording, I have been following your newsletter for at least eight months now, and it's just such a a refreshing weekly dose of a little bit of inspiration, productivity hacks, but also you just pack it full of value, but you you read it in two minutes, which I love with our busy lives that we have. So thank you for all the work you're doing and for joining us. Well, eight eight months and you still want to talk to me. That's impressive. Um, I haven't haven't scared you away. No. And in fact, here we are. You got got you on the podcast now. So yeah, I would love for you to start a little bit about your journey. Let's understand, like, I was really curious when I was reading up more on you about you were a rainforest researcher and then how that kind of transitioned into focusing on impact and entrepreneurship. Right. I guess part of the answer is we don't, we don't know slash can't predict despite our best efforts, what our career path is going to be. But it is funny that in my path from researching in Costa Rica and Panama in the rainforest to, you know, now mostly focused on climate tech startups and finance, seems like a, a very unrelated series of events. But what I tell folks is the the goals are the same, just the means to those ends are different now. I thought when I was, you know, an environmental science major, biology chem minor, that somehow rainforest research and then you know the related academic writing and, and conferences and so forth, that would be my path to you know save the world. But what I found was that when I came back, the audience I was talking to was both small and almost entirely academic. And God bless academics, I'm still a stuff a foot in those in that world, obviously teaching at Duke and UNC. But I didn't feel like that was my path to make it the biggest, the biggest difference. Also unpredictable, when I was in grad school at UNC, getting my master's and PhD, I mentioned to my PhD advisor that I wanted to work in brownfield redevelopment. And in the U.S., brownfields refers to real estate land that is actually polluted or perceived to have environmental pollution because of a manufacturing or industrial use in the past. So I I didn't know that my advisor worked with the CEO of the world's largest investor in redeveloping brownfields who lived 30 minutes away. So that was uh, Tom Darden, who became a mentor and Cherokee Investment Partners. So then I learned about what the firm did. It's, it's It's a private equity. It was a private equity firm. I didn't know what private equity was. I came from just the sciences. And what I slowly realized was that you could use capital 
and lots of it. We ended up raising $2 billion to purchase 500 plus properties. You could use capital to do good things in the world, things I cared about, and also uh, achieve market rate financial returns. You know, not every single deal, but especially when they're higher risk, higher reward. That was how I learned finance and entrepreneurship, ultimately leading me to a spot where I said, well, how else can I better support growth of climate solutions, profitable climate solutions, which I think are more likely to scale than those that are, of course, not profitable, although look, obviously a role for nonprofits. And I learned about the CEO peer group model, what we do at Entrepreneurs for Impact, running CEO peer groups in a way is not unique at all. There are, I don't know, probably hundreds of thousands of CEOs in these peer groups of you know 10 or 15 to share best practices, celebrate wins, commiserate losses, talk about hacks, et cetera. But we said, well, or I said, well, let's make this only for climate-focused entrepreneurs, usually venture capital-backed, not always, sometimes generating lots of, lots of revenue all across the climate solution space. So far, it's just in North America. That's mostly about time zones that work or the ability to travel to our, our three or four in-person events per year. And the cool thing is that teaching I do at, at Duke and UNC, the work in private equity, my work in impact investment banking, a few startups, and magically, this world of you know 25 years of meditation, they all come together pretty nicely to provide multiple perspectives to CEOs on their paths to grow big businesses profitably that, that try to put a dent in climate change. So that was an earful. Hopefully the audience is still with us. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's interesting how it all the roads led to what you're building now. And from such, a, it seems different backgrounds, but actually it all makes total sense, as you said. So I think because you're across so many different parts of the conversation, big picture, what excites you and kind of what terrifies you about the climate conversation slash climate tech right now? Well, let's start with the, the scarier part. I think it comes in a couple of flavors. One is just timing. I mean, it's wonderful that there's so much innovation and capital in the space, but it takes time to go from a great idea to a solution at massive scale across the world. And I worry about the timing between those two things, those two points. I think another is that luckily there's been 100 billion plus invested in climate tech startups in the last three years or so across 2,500 plus startups. That's very positive for sure, very exciting. Lots of solutions. Some won't work, many, many will. But when those that don't work fail, which is the nature of innovation, the nature of startups, do we have folks saying, oh, this was, this was a bubble, this is a fad, this is not a true for-profit investment, and lose interest? I don't think that's going to be the case, but certainly we saw things like this with the clean tech kind of VC, venture capital investment activity in the whatever, mid-2000s or so. Yeah, I think now is different. I think the realization that Climate tech is not a sector. It is, it is a horizontal. It is not a, it's not a vertical, it's horizontal. It touches almost every sector. I think the macro picture, whether it's in the US, the Inflation Reduction Act with you know, $370 billion or so, much of that benefiting climate-friendly infrastructure, if you will. Similarly, new efforts in 
Europe with with their Green Deal and, and other parts of the world. Corporates, the biggest investors in the world, I mean, you know, BlackRock that manages $9 trillion or so, says, look, climate risk is finance risk. I think all those things mean this time is is different. I think on the positive, I alluded to it, but, you know, thousands of companies in climate tech getting venture capital funding in the last few years, 20 to 25% of all venture capital dollars going to climate tech. That is a big, big number. You know, I've been in, in versions of this space for 25 years. If you would have told me that was that, that was true, I don't know, five years ago, I would have thought you had no idea what you're talking about. So this is this is also very good news. And then if we look away from venture capital and startups to infrastructure, I mean, I think Bloomberg NEF tracks something like $1.3, $1.5 trillion invested last year, which is up year over year a healthy amount. And this is really positive. It's a much, much, much larger number than venture capital. This is, you know, solar projects, wind projects, battery projects, EV, electric vehicle chargers and fleets. This is all really positive news as well. Mm. I mean, it's great to hear the positive news. And so I guess it prompts me to think five, 10 years down the line, what do you think we're going to be seeing? Do you actually think that this, the gap between timing and innovation and the success that you mentioned earlier, we're going to be actually seeing that? Are we going to be having a much more global reliance on renewable energy and technology? Is this going to be something that's going to be in the foreseeable near future? So there's a quote that the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. I think William Gibson maybe is, the, is the, the guy behind that. I think we can look at places, you know, Norway, Iceland, Costa Rica. There are examples where whether it's the prevalence of electric vehicles or the cost of the low cost, competitive cost of solar and wind, let's say, where it's already mainstream. Even if we look at the US, I think probably 75% of all new power production capacity added to the U.S. grid this year will be solar or wind. I think if you look at, that's a pretty good one, actually. One theory is that the technologies that are already proven, solar, wind, batteries, EVs, that they will continue to scale and maybe they buy us time such that the tech innovations being funded with venture capital have that time to scale while they're kind of <laughs> playing the first half, if you will, right? Think of a basketball mm-hmm. analogy. That could be a way this this works out uh, in a kind of positive way. Mm. But I think overall, you would say you are positive about the future. <laughs> you know, you have three kids, you said before. So are you positive about the future that our children are going to have? Or are you kind of worried about what they're going to face when they're our age, for example? And are there any sort of like misconceptions you want to address like when it comes to this conversation? Well, there were two questions and the answer is is yes to both. Am I optimistic? Yes. Am I worried? Yes. I think that the first one, how can we not choose optimism, right? I think if we if we choose pessimism, things get worse more quickly and we're all more miserable on the ride down, if you will. There's a quote by Paul Hawken, an entrepreneur and author in the States, that says something like if we focus on the data, we'll be pessimists. And if we focus on the people behind the solutions, we'll be optimistic. We'll be optimists. And I think that's part of it. 
you know, I started my podcast at Entrepreneurs for Impact maybe in 2020, where, you know, it's it's obviously it's COVID time in the U.S. It's also the era of President Trump, who's most all of whose policies we did not really agree with. And it was uh, after George Floyd was murdered. So racial equity concerns. It'd be very easy to think the world was kind of going to hell in a handbasket. And in in many ways it was, well, in the U.S. at least. But all day long, I was talking with, working with, helping, collaborating with climate tech CEOs and investors focused on solutions. So I was pumped up all day long. And then I would would get off of work and walk 30 yards (laughs) from my, my office in the woods to my home. And then I would be hit with the news and my wife much more aware of the news. So I think we can choose a little bit what to focus on. The world's full of problems. I mean, look, this is a problem with news and, and media that we now are much more aware of all the world's problems, which affects us, although we can't change most of those. But we can pick one or two to make a, a positive you know, impact. I think that's, that's part of what's going on here. I tell you, thinking about whatever, decades from now, when I'm, say, driving with our kids and something comes on, whatever, the, the NPR radio station about some new climate insurance product or something, and I just tell the kids, I say, look, what you're hearing is cutting edge, it may or may not work, but things like this are going to be on the news, going to be in your daily life, part of your budget every year. It's going to be so, so, so mainstream. It's already happening, right, with, with the headlines around the natural disaster piece of this. Anyway, yes, optimistic is the, the short answer to a very long way of answering your question. Yeah, no, I appreciate the optimism and what you shared just now. And so I'm also curious what your views on AI are and the role it may or may not play in helping to solve for sustainability or potentially exasperating the situation. First of all, not an expert. I think second of all, many companies in any sector, certainly climate tech included, will include AI as a piece of what they do. It won't make them an AI company, let's say. It's like, oh, you, you're a mobile app. That's all you are. And that's just, that's a medium or it's a, it's a function. It's a tool. I think with, with AI, there are examples. Who did I interview recently? DMC Biotechnologies. I had uh, uh, Matt on the podcast. You know, he mentioned the use of AI in, the, in their work in kind of biotech meets, meets climate tech, kind of fermentation as a pathway to producing compounds that don't come from oil, or a company that, whose CEO I work with, Jeff Earhart at Matik, M-A-T-T-I-Q, you know, their use of AI in discovering novel chemistries. I think AI can be a great tool to help us iterate, you know, on chemistry or biology, to find solutions that heretofore have been hard to to find solutions for. Beyond that, I don't have a lot of expertise to add. No, no, no. Thank you for sharing your thoughts, your high-level thoughts. And so I love that you talk openly, even on your LinkedIn bio, right, about being an expert in failure and that you've made way too many mistakes to keep to yourself. So can you share some of those failures and some of the lessons that you've learned from being so okay with failure? The reason I... I started putting that on the LinkedIn bio or my bio at Entrepreneurs for Impact is it's so easy for emerging professionals 
students, et cetera, to see someone in their career, someone's, you know, LinkedIn profile, professional bio and think, oh man, they just, they got it all figured out. Look how great that, that was or is, which is not usually true at all. And so I want to remind folks that, you know, 90 plus percent of what I tried doesn't work. Now, luckily, I keep trying new things, and so some things, some things work out. That's true in entrepreneurship. It's true in investment. So that, that's one, I think, takeaway. I mean, I think about when I was in private equity, here I was in the PhD program and just freshly out of it, and my work with the team there to create sustainability design guidelines they were going to have an impact on some $15 billion of real estate build out on the property that we were cleaning up across North America. And I mean, the A takeaway is that never happened because the recession hit. So that's a minor bump we couldn't predict. I think I think a lesson there is we don't control everything, but being more comfortable with the process versus just the results. This is a lesson from Buddhism as well, one that or maybe certainly certainly from Buddhism, that I don't take to heart very easily. As I think about talking to my climate CEOs in the peer group at Entrepreneurs for Impact about, hey, folks, focus on the process, the systems, not the outcomes. I can just hear some of them right now saying, WTF? No, no, it is the outcome, right? It is a dent in climate change. It is profit for our investors. It is retirement nest eggs for our team members after blood, sweat, and tears to build these solutions. Anyway, I think other examples come around either raising capital or closing transactions. Easily a couple of hundred million dollars that should have closed, right, in deals. All the signs were there. The parties liked each other. The the needs on both sides were being met. Yet, yet the deals didn't close. You know, earlier in my career, just kind of, uh, I don't know, gut-wrenching to, to be almost kind of counting counting those wins before they were they were really realized. But later to say, well, or to understand that deals fall apart. And that's not uncommon. It's more common, in fact. It's so common, there's there's an expression that says um something like uh dogs bark, cats meow, and deals fall apart. Right? That's how common it is for deals <laughs> to fall apart. I was giving a webinar yesterday doing some live coaching for founders in climate tech around capital raising. And one of them said that he expects rejection. And I think that's that's a good mentality when you're raising capital is if you talk to 125 investors, if you're lucky, three to five will say yes, which means the rest of them ghost you, ignore you, or say no for different reasons, for lots of different reasons. I think similarly, expect failure. Easy to say, easier to understand now than it was, you know, years ago. But that's part of the process. Okay, but what about the other side of that coin when, you know, if you're expecting rejection or you're expecting failure, then that's all you kind of that's the energy you're putting out and that's also <laughs> then what you're giving yourself, you know what I mean? Like if you're putting that message out in the world, then that's what you're going to get back also. So, I mean, I know it's you, we don't want to be toxic a toxic positivity or anything like that as well. But I don't know. I just feel like I wouldn't want to expect failure because then I feel like it's just going to be in my face all the time more than it probably is. It's a good point. Maybe this is a, a language nuance. Maybe it's more like um, 
to not be surprised by failure is the better phrasing for it. It isn't like I expect it, I seek it, I demand it, right? It's more like if it happens, I'm not surprised by it is maybe the better way to think about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or not affected by it, right? I think, yeah. Okay. (laughs) But I think a lot of us still are pretty scared of failure. I think it really is a big deal for a lot of people. And a lot of us will go out of our way to avoid it. And, you know, I really think that it can control and paralyze a lot of decisions. So what do you say for someone that's maybe really stuck right now and they're scared to fail? What can we say to them? Maybe one idea is to read biographies, right? Autobiographies, biographies, et cetera. Because I think when we do that, we realize people have, A, they've dealt with much bigger problems than those we may be wrestling with. And also, I think that the, the, I don't know, icons, legends in history that we, we think are kind of invincible, they weren't. If it's an honest autobiography or biography, you see that they struggled as well. So I, think, I think that making those on pedestals more human helps us to understand that uh, you know, we're, not, we're not as different as we may think. Perhaps something else might be to take action. And I just, I mean, just would contrast that with with, I don't know, worry or analysis or procrastination, let's say, taking action, even small, like what's the smallest action you can take could be another way to do that. Or if possible, to kind of get out of the emotions of fear and get a little rational for a second, maybe through journaling, to look back in your past to say, well, when else did I have fear? What was the result after I kind of worked through that? And, you know, maybe not every single time it was a a success, but oftentimes it would be a success and say, wait a second, perhaps there's a trend line to draw through these dots of my past experiences. You know, here, 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 there was fear. I took action. The result was better than I thought. So if we extrapolate, maybe the same thing happens now. By the way, not saying it's easy, but uh, some ideas there. No, of course not. But I think it's a habit like and like everything else, you know, when you choose to take action and not get stuck in thought, I think that is such a beautiful choice and a, and a muscle to build because yeah, being stuck in thought, it, you're not going to get anywhere. You're not going to get clarity from that. And so, yeah, I deeply am a believer in taking action. So I love that you brought that up. And uh, you mentioned before, quote from Buddhism, and I understand that you actually trained to be a Buddhist monk. So I would love to share, understand a little bit about what that journey was like and what were the, some of the things that you took away from that? Well, to clarify, if, if if folks are if folks were to see me online, they would think, "How is it possible this person studied in monasteries? Look at all that damn hair he's got. He should be bald to do that." Anyway, yeah, I I had a strong, I guess you know, spiritual leaning even growing up. It helped perhaps that I had twelve years of Catholic schooling. My entire family very Catholic. In college, as it happens, you know, I explored other uh, other religions. Buddhism resonated quite a bit. I think my first mentor, if you will, teacher from afar, was Thich Nhat Hanh, so a, a Vietnamese uh, Buddhist teacher, and he wrote a book called Living Buddha, Living Christ, one of his hundred books or so. Very prolific author, teacher, Martin Luther King Jr., nominated him for the Nobel Peace Prize. Anyway, that was the unentry point, I believe, to understand the benefits, both meditation and that perspective on life. 
And frankly, to realize you could be a Buddhist and or practice meditation and still be a Christian or other religions, right? I mean, in many ways, Buddhism is as much a philosophy or psychological practice, mental fitness training, if you will, than it is a religion, although most would not agree with that. Anyway, the training, let's see. It started with visiting Plum Village, which was the the monastery of Thich Nhat Hanh in southern France. Not southern France because it's all the number of reasons folks think of of southern France, you know, wine and coasts and such, but more because Thich Nhat Hanh was exiled from Vietnam because during the Vietnam-American War, he, speaking of taking action, he essentially formed a civil service organization, mostly of Buddhist monks, that would tend to the sick and wounded from both sides of the war. And the Vietnamese government didn't think too highly of that. So he was exiled and set up his his base in, in southern France. It, it's amazing if folks have heard of it and have not been. Another experience was, I was going to say, hanging out with, spending time. This was a, a short retreat at the Tibetan Cultural Center in Bloomington, Indiana. Not what one would think of as the hotbed for Tibetan Buddhism in America, but the brother of the Dalai Lama, who in his own right was a high-ranking Lama, a teacher, that was his home. And so during that time, hearing both his story of escape from Chinese persecution and then meeting another Tibetan Buddhist, Paul Ngatso, Paul Ngatso is his name. He had been in Chinese prisons for 30, I think 32 years, tortured. We saw, you know, marks from being electrocuted in his mouth, on his shoulder. But as he walked around to bow with each of us to see the peace in this guy's face, I just thought, <laughs> there's something here worth exploring, that he could have so much, you know, <laughs> evil and cruelty and persecution and still be so bright and light and loving. Uh, maybe I'll just give one more example. There's a there's kind of a mountain monastery in California called Tassajara. It's part of the, of the San Francisco Zen Center, maybe the first monastery, Zen monastery in the U.S., and spent six weeks there, which was amazing. You, you kind of worked to run a functioning hot springs resort, not a lot, and, and then you live the life of a monk otherwise. So very early morning and evening meditations, sitting and walking meditations, uh, Dharma talks, a lot of time at the library, a lot of time alone in nature. Anyway, I think keeping those practices alive outside of retreats and, and weeks at monasteries, I'm not saying it's every single day, but when things are functioning best in my life, it's partly because I am making time for meditation, reflection, journaling, usually early in the morning before the three kids are awake and then the routine, you know, starts. But you may have seen frequently saying it is, yes, 25 years of meditation practice. The key word there is practice, right? It's tons of, tons of distraction most every time that I sit to meditate. And so, you know, I... Lots of friends will say, well, I'm not good at meditation. It's just, they say, my mind's everywhere. I say, join the club, right? That's the nature of our, of our monkey minds, as they say. 
Yeah, but the the more we do it, the more we can kind of watch what's going on, you know, let it go, right? As if cars are passing in front of us on the road and to find more space. And I think that that ability to find the space can show up in our daily life where, you know, the the space between stimulus and response is longer. And so we're more conscious about our choice in how to react versus being reactive, which I don't know about you, but um, sometimes if there's a stimulus I don't like and I'm reactive, it is not the most loving reaction, most most enlightened reaction. Anyway, a work in progress for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I like that, you know, you, you talk about 25 years of practice and you're still trying to figure it out because <laughs> that made me smile because I think it, it really is true. You know, it, it's not that easy, but it does make a difference in that commitment to it. So I think that's great. So, or maybe, maybe I'm just really slow, Steph. I don't know. <laughs> slow in my progress. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows indeed. So, if you were to sort of distill some of your key learnings of your life down for a few wedges of wisdom, what would they be or, you know, how you live your life? Let's see. Well, I guess the first statement is I don't really know much. So take this up with a grain of salt. But some things that I think about a lot, one is maybe it's from the Bible, but there are many versions of this, which is something like to those to whom much is given, much is expected in return. and you look, I grew up in the States, in the U.S., in a family that stayed together, lots of extended family, you know, had 12 years of Catholic schooling, middle class upbringing, et cetera, et cetera. I had all these gifts that many folks don't get. I was born into it, right? I had no choice. Born into it, got, got, got lucky. But with that comes responsibility. You don't just get to get that and just play or take it for granted. So I think that's that's one of the reasons that I keep trying to find ways to build a career of impact. It's either that or a deep, deep insufficiency complex. <laughs> one, of the, one of those two. But um, let's, let's go with the former as, as optimists here. I think the other thought which comes to mind a lot is there's a version of this in Native American traditions in the U.S., but it's around a parable with um, this idea that we have, we have two wolves if you will, inside of us, right? You've heard this story. Your listeners probably have too. One is, you know, greedy and evil and such. The other is loving, uh, caring, etc. And well, which one shows up? Well, it's or which one grows, right? It's, it's the one that you feed. And I think about it like even choosing what what to watch on TV for that thirty or forty minutes. Some days, what do I want to want to put in my brain, right? Like, what seeds do I want to plant? What kind of where do I want to pour that water, provide that organic fertilizer, et cetera, such that they, they grow? So just kind of being having having guard maybe over the over the mind. I mean, look, that said, with the TV example, it's far from perfect. I have teenagers and they love to watch a very it's called South Park in the US. Oh yes. And it's like the 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 id in your psychology just has no just it's like on full display. Anyway, we all need our our releases as well. But anyway, I think yeah, that those those two quotes or parables come to mind a lot in framing I don't know how I choose to spend my time. Again, with exclamation points, it's a work in progress. 
Totally. Life is a work in progress. I think we're all work in progresses and I think it's a beautiful thing to celebrate. And yeah, I like those, those two, they're very clear examples. My final question for you is how do you think that we can live wide awake? Well, first I would say, what a great question. I just love the question. More of us should, should ask ourselves this question. One is around this idea of micro practice. I'm not sure that's a word, but I think let's just call it a word micro practice. So it isn't like we need to go on, you know, a week long or 10 day silent meditation to live wide awake. Those can be nice. Mm -hmm. But as an example, on my phone, I set alarms to go off at 10 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 4 o'clock, so every two hours through the working day. And those are my mindfulness moments. Now, what I'm supposed to do, Steph, is stop and working on, take three long breaths, maybe some sort of intention, right? A, a kind thought or prayer for somebody or something, and then get back to work. Now, do I do that every single time? No way. Um, but if it works just half the time, that's more than it would have worked. So I think that's, a, that's an example of a micro uh, practice, you know, something like, um, you know, uh, bowing three times before bed, right? Super tiny. It takes almost no time. Just moment of gratitude or reverence or whatnot for something bigger than, than where our, our minds usually are is a, is a micro practice. And then maybe this is less micro, but if we had a book Maybe it's in the spiritual tradition. Maybe it's philosophy, psychology, to read five or ten minutes in the morning, or maybe maybe it's in the evening. But a way to either kind of set the intention for the day, or to I don't know plant seeds for whatever our subconscious does while we sleep. That could be a small example as well. A less micro practice. I was reminded of this last night on Netflix. Here in the U.S., there's a show called Live to 100, and it's about this work of the blue zones, right? So areas of the yeah. world with high concentrations of folks living to be over 100. And they were talking about Sardinia and Okinawa. And one of the reasons they believe folks tend to live to be very old and healthy is the power of community. So I think this idea of, of building, building your tribe you know, whether it's local, whether maybe it's online. I mean, certainly we're trying to do things like that with our CEO peer groups and entrepreneurs for impact, but finding your people and committing to it. It won't always be easy or perfect, but committing to a tribe, because look, if you're committing, it hopefully means they're committing to you as well. We're social creatures, despite what some of us may, may believe. But that'd be the last idea is, this tribe can remind us that we need to be living more wide awake, perhaps. Mm. No, I love that. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for joining us. It was great and very, uh, yeah. lots of different directions of conversation, which I always love. So thank you for sharing and making the time. Well, thanks for what you're doing. I think this, I think live wide awake. What a great call to action reminder. It's almost the opposite of this phrase that, um, you know, we all live in our own skull sized kingdoms. We're, we're just so stuck, right, in, in our own little worlds, living not so wide awake. So thanks for reminding us all what we could be doing. Thank you. Three things I'm taking away from this conversation with Chris. 
Firstly, climate risk is a financial risk. There is a time gap between innovation and success, but with 20 to 25% of VC money going to climate, hopefully we're going to see that gap reducing. Secondly, what seeds are you planting or watering in your mind? We all have a choice and we can choose the soil and the plants at any point. Thirdly, find your community and commit to them. It's not always going to be easy, but it will be rewarding. I'm curious, what did you think about the episode and what were your main takeaways? Is there a topic you want me to dive deeper into? I'd love to hear from you. You can find me at Steph L. Dixon or at Live Wide Awake. If you got something out of the podcast and you want to continue this journey with us, consider subscribing and supporting. I hope that today's conversation stirred something deep within you, ready to awaken. And until next time, live wide awake.